Welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. On this episode, we're discussing the recent kerfluffle over integrated information theory, which is a theory on consciousness that was first described by Giulio Tononi in 2004. Recently, a group of prominent scientists and philosophers signed a collective statement entitled The Integrated Information Theory of Consciousness as Pseudoscience that will form the basis of our discussion today. Our guest is Felipe de Brigard, an associate professor of philosophy at the Institute for Brain Sciences at Duke University. Felipe studies the philosophy of neuroscience and has published extensively on cognition, memory, and consciousness. He also happens to be a signatory on the statement against integrated information theory, and he wrote a Substack post about his position that we'll link to on the show notes. So thanks a lot for joining us today, Felipe. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great. And uh, before we get into the weeds, uh, talking about integrated information theory, what it is, and it can be a little complicated, maybe we could start out uh, saying a little bit more of you, about your background uh, and your interest in consciousness and, and how you how you view the, the state of the field today. Right. So um, as you mentioned, I am a professor in the philosophy department, but I'm also a professor in the psychology and neuroscience department, and uh, I also have a lab in the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. So I'm one weird philosopher that does imaging and, and, and uses a bunch of techniques from cognitive neuroscience and from cognitive science. I have been interested in straddling the two disciplines for as long as I can remember. I majored in the Universidad Nacional de Colombia in Bogota. Uh, I majored in philosophy and I also did neuropsychology. Back then I thought that that was the only way of understanding how the mind and the brain would interact through neuropsychology. And to a certain extent, I still have a huge amount of my love uh, goes to neuropsychology. Um, and then I did a master's at Tufts University working under Dan Dennett. And uh, it was impossible not to fall in love with consciousness when you're working under Dan Dennett. Uh, so I got, I was very interested in that uh, at the time. And then I did my PhD at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And uh, I was doing sort of a parallel PhD, one in philosophy and one in, in psychology and neuroscience. And my advisor in philosophy was Jesse Prince, who was at the time also working on consciousness and, and in particular, the interaction between attention and consciousness. Um, so, and we're talking, you know, 2006. And uh, back then it was, you know, a really hot topic, what was the relationship between attention and consciousness? I thought that I was going to probably do research on that. So in fact, my first lab rotation was in Joe Hopkinger's lab, who's a, an attention researcher, and he was sort of interested too in attention and, and consciousness. Um, but as I became, I guess, a better cognitive scientist, I became more and more frustrated with a lot of the terms of the debate in, in consciousness and, and attention literature, because there were some, some issues that seemed to me terminological in the bad sense, not in exactly uh, what we mean by a term, but rather in exactly how we are using the term relative to a particular operationalization in an experiment, which are two very different things, right? So here is one example that I can give you that probably resonates with your, your interest in vision science. Uh, so we kind of know that there is re-entrant activity in V1, right? That you have the information coming, you know, through your eyes, optic nerve, uh, probably what, seven, 
80 milliseconds after it's still in sunset, you get V1 activity, then it moves forward, and then we know that there is some sort of reentrant activity coming back. The temporal window of that activity is essential to understand the processing, right? But there were some of the members of the debate that were kind of not paying attention to that temporal distribution. Uh, so they would claim that attention was something that happens only when you have uh, your eyes being directed toward the target. Um, and then as a result, if you understand attention under those terms, then it looks as though in certain phenomena that you're conscious of, then attention is not necessary. But by contrast, you can have other people that define attention with some other, uh, you know, another experimental paradigm in which attention is deployed over a much longer period of time. And then you have now certain activity that is re-entrant on V1 and then certain things that under one paradigm sounded like not attention and therefore you know, not necessary for consciousness or whatever. And there's another paradigm in which attention is differently operationalized. It turns out that it is necessary. And that, that was a lot of frustration in that sense because it made, um, it's not even that, that there is some clarity on how the term is used, is that the terms become sort of piggybacking on particular operationalizations that are highly dependent on particular measures that are highly dependent on one particular experimental design. And that makes, the really, you know, is, is lacking of what, what Mel calls, you know, uh, criteria for construct, construct criteria, right? So it means, it, it was frustrating for me. So I started to gravitate more toward aspects of, uh, of cognitive science that had, I guess, better measures. I'm not saying like ideal measures, but I'm saying uh, measures that I could trust a little bit more. Uh, and then that's why a lot of the reason why I ended up doing cognitive science of memory. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. I mean, I guess just a, a little bit of, uh, just terminology. So, uh, Felipe, I mentioned V1, that's yeah. uh, a part of the brain that neuroscientists refer to as visual area one. So V1 is, uh, what we call the primary visual cortex, the part of the occipital lobe. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's really uh, a good point that, you know, just the kinds of ways that people operationalize terms and what they mean by them uh, can really influence a debate when you start talking about, well, you know, attention is, you know, depends on this area of the brain or attention operates in this way, or there's this relationship between consciousness and attention how you feel about that, how you think about that really depends on what you mean by attention and, and, and the other terms that you're using. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely, I, that resonates with me as well. And I do remember in the, at least in the first edition of, of the vision science textbook, uh, under the definition of attention, it said, see consciousness under the definition of consciousness, it said, see awareness. And under the definition of awareness, it said, see attention. So yeah. <laughs> this, this circularity and this, uh, changing of of definition of all these terms all the time they can uh, it can certainly get confusing so let's get so let's get on and maybe talk a little bit about what um integrated information theory is now um how did you first run into this uh, idea and what were you what were your first takes on on this when you ran into it felipe right so um so as i as i said at that point we're talking 
geez, like 2006, perhaps 2007. I was. And the theory would have come about in just in 2004, 2004 right. correct? So, I mean, I was voraciously reading everything that I could put my hands on, like not only on attention, but like every everything philosophy and everything philosophy of mind and so forth. So I read last year were like the classics, right? So I read Churchland and Dennett and uh, uh, Hurley and uh, and even some stuff that was like weird, like Sultan Tori's theory, which nobody has read, but I thought it was very interesting because the author being blind, uh, I thought it was very intriguing to see how a blind person would come up with a theory of, of consciousness, uh, given that a lot of the theory of consciousness that we have come from examples on vision. Mm. So I, I was just voraciously reading everything. The IAT, which is short for information integration theory, uh, was starting to sort of make the rounds a little bit, but it was more my understanding or my feeling at least as a graduate student in philosophy at the time is that it was more of a sort of a big thing in a small group. Uh, so it was a, a, a new theory, but only for, for a very select group of specialists. And part of, uh, of the, the reason I think that it was felt as a very sort of specialized theory is because it was uh, shrouded with an enormous amount of mathematics. Uh, and uh, so it looked technically re really, really hard. And, uh, you know, so only like like the most brilliant minds could could get to really the core of this very difficult truths that they're so difficult that English doesn't uh, doesn't serve right, its right. purpose in communicating that idea. You really needed to know this very complex mathematics. Uh, so so that's sort of how I understood it, and I you know I and uh, I wasn't going to put the time into trying to understand the formulas for what it was supposed to be my hobby at that point, rather than my main area of research. Um, but then what ended up happening, and then sure enough, at that point, I was less interested in going to conferences on attention. I didn't go to Tucson, didn't go to a, the association with, with the scientific study of consciousness and, uh, and, and so forth. I was going to the Society for Philosophy and Psychology and and uh, where there were some issues on, on consciousness and attention, but it was not specifically on consciousness. Um, but the sort of the rumor that I started to hear, and we're talking now perhaps, you know, 2010, 2011, was that people were starting to say, well, this is kind of mathematical mumbo jumbo, right? It is, it is kind of like this fancy, very technical stuff, but without a whole lot of content to it. But that was a rumor. It was just, you know, people would say this in murmurs. Um, and, uh, and I was like, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of theories out there that's used weird metaphors uh, to explain things. I mean, I don't think that multiple drafts is necessarily more objective than some mathematical formula. So I, I was willing to suspend a lot of uh, uh, judgment on whether or not what we have here is like a mathematical metaphor something that 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 is kind of like a model but is not exactly like a computational model something in between and i didn't know enough about it to be quite honest uh nor did i want to delve too too much into it until 2014 when aronson uh published that scanting sort of uh blog entry where he basically um shows using the math how you end up um using the the 
axioms and the mathematical formalisms of the informational integration theory, you end up having to say of certain systems that you would never say are conscious, that they are conscious. And it was, you know, that math was easier to follow. In fact, a lot of, uh, it saved me quite a bit of time because I, uh, at that point, I sort of understood more what the math was. And it's also, it's just that I have problems with the notation, even the notation uh, used in the book and in the first paper is like, if you're, I have a student that was saying the other day is like, this is probably not notation created by a mathematician. Uh, so, but anyway, so I thought that that blog post was kind of like the final, you know, counter argument and that people were going to see what IIT was for what it is, right? It's a theory that it's a mathematical formalism that just didn't work out, period. So, so that's how I, I, I came and, and uh, I remember you know, spending a, some t good time reading what was going on at, at that, uh, in 2014 and, and just feeling at that point that this is just another theory. Cool, maybe we learned something about it. It was an interesting perspective to see a consciousness from, but I didn't think of it as being uh, very promising at that point. So um, let me step in here too, and we can talk just a little bit about, so you've mentioned a couple aspects of the theory. First of all, that it's um, mathematically specified or that there's some complex math that goes into it. Um, maybe I could read uh, a quick description of it so that people get a high high level overview. And this is from um, Chinoni's website. Uh, so I'll, I'll just read a quick paragraph about this. Okay, so about integrated information theory. So consciousness corresponds to a system's capacity to integrate information. This is indicated by two key phenomenological properties of consciousness. Differentiation, the availability of a very large number of conscious experiences, and integration, the unity of each such experience. The theory claims that the quantity of consciousness is determined by the capacity to integrate information, which can be measured as the phi value of a complex of elements. Phi, and this is the main um, term that gets used in, in, in IIT, phi is the amount of causally effective information that can be exchanged across the minimum information bipartition of a complex, its informational weakest link. Okay, and then there's a little bit more on phi there. Um, but I think that gives the, the main idea behind IIT. And they also, so the latest version of IIT, it's gone through a couple different iterations. There's a paper that's recently out that describes IIT 4.0 and includes some other baggage that comes along with it. So I think, what is it? Five postulates or five, mm -hmm. um, five, yeah. um, five things that are sort of part of it. And those aren't necessarily, those are sort of relating it to consciousness, not necessarily uh, mathematical descriptions. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, it's worth also probably even taking one step further back to ask the question, like, what is a theory? like IIT, Integrated Information Theory, trying to solve, yeah. more specifically in this context, like what, what are some of the problems that are trying to be addressed by the theory? Right. Th you know, I think one of the things that seems to be trying to be addressed is what is the relationship between uh, the brain and consciousness? So, you know, there's this idea that you've got a system in the, in the brain, a set of neurons and other, uh, you know, biological uh, systems that work together to uh, create your conscious experience. It, it, that's like one way of, of viewing the problem, for example. And 
a theory of consciousness that relates that brain function to conscious uh, awareness is a theory that you know one might be interested in developing that might lead you down a road that would ultimately become a thing like IIT. That it's sort of in that world. Does that does that make sense? Am I saying something that? Yeah, I mean. IIT is similar in certain regards to certain other theories in the offing, but I think it is importantly different uh, and, and kind of unique in, in a different sense, which is uh, that it, it takes, I think this Artononi's own words, it takes consciousness uh, as, as the given starting point as opposed to the brain. So, um, so he, he said, like, look, instead of thinking about uh, how is it that this part of the brain might relate to consciousness, let's start with what we know about consciousness. So one way in which I like to think about it, and this is perhaps uh, another sort of side way, I'll get back to IIT in just a second, but um, is that there was a, another moment in which I thought about IIT very carefully, and I talked about this in my, in my entry on the Substack, which was the first and only time which I have met Panoni, which was at a conference in December of 2018 at the Max Planck Institute. And Tononi was one of the speakers there. And I was really interested in talking to him about IIT and about his theory, because I was not willing yet to think that it was just mathematical mumbo jumbo, that there might be something very interesting behind it. And I must confess that I was on the one hand disappointed, but on the other hand, I was quite satisfied uh, with my conversation with him because what I ended up with the impression is that he is kind of like a rationalist philosopher uh, rather than an empiricist philosopher trying to talk about consciousness. So, I mean, you can imagine him kind of like Descartes in the meditations going uh, to like, forget about the world, forget about everything that we know. How can we get back to something we're completely sure about our thinking? So for Descartes was, uh, you know, that I think that is undoubtable that I doubt and doubt is an act of thinking. So it should be very clear that I think, right? Now, we know, I don't have to get into those details, but we know from the history of philosophy that that, that conclusion is probably not warranted. But I think that what, what Tononi wanted to do was something similar con on consciousness is what when I reflect on my own conscious state, what do I get that is indubitable? And according to him, these axioms um, are like the basic building blocks of our experience, our conscious ex experience, and there's things that we need to give for granted and, and accept as, as self-evident, right? And it is that what becomes the exponent. In other words, that is what we want to explain. And his axioms, he has five axioms. One is like consciousness exists intrinsically. Uh, he also, second is composition, con consciousness is composed, um, is structured. Uh, the third axiom is, is, is consciousness is supposed to be uh, specific and there is a particular way in which consciousness is and he thinks that that is called information. Uh, the th there is another axiom which is integration and then there is finally another axiom which is exclusion. At this point, part of what happens, and then he was explaining to me, because we had a very nice dinner, and he was sort of explaining to me, and quite honestly, what I was seeing was sort of a metaphysical view about consciousness. What he does, my understanding for what I've seen, what he does is that he tries to give a mathematical apparatus 
that according to him would uh, sort of account for these axioms, right? That are self-evident. And in so far as they're self-evident, they're supposed to be sort of irrefutable about our conscious experience. So it's a very different way of going about, like if you poke this thing in your brain, then your consciousness is below certain threshold. And if you poke this, it's going to be above certain threshold or this part of the consciousness. Like, it's very different. It is it's sort of a top-down approach, if you want, rather than the bottom-up approach. And that makes IIT unique. But at the same time, it makes it uniquely problematic. Uh, what makes it uniquely problematic is, first of all, those actions are, as many people have argued, far from being self-evident. Uh, those actions are really difficult to understand in many ways, and there are, you know, others have argued that are profoundly ambiguous. So one way in which I like to think about this is you have this sort of metaphysical view of the consciousness, and then there is a mathematical model that is supposed to relate to this metaphysical view of consciousness. And then there is the reality, which is supposed to relate to this mathematical model, right? And the gaps between these three levels are ginormous. The amounts of degrees of freedom and post hoc possible explanations between those levels are ginormous, right? So this is, this is where I started to think, look, IIT should be considered a metaphysical theory. There are metaphysical theories. Philosophers come up with metaphysical theories about consciousness all the time. So if it is to be a theory at all, it is in that sort of, that's the domain in which it should be argued with. And maybe if we clarify the theory and so forth, and it is not without metaphysical confusion and so forth, maybe we can see how that could potentially be translated into something that we could find in the world. But for me, that was, that, that set it apart from other more scientific theories, if you want more empirical theories. So to, so to me, the, I mean, the appeal of, of a theory like this is, well, it may not be right, at least it is an attempt at um, trying to trying to make a, determina a determination about what consciousness is uh, in any kind of system, right? So it's a, it's a way to have a consciousness detector. So you could say, is this thing conscious? Is this thing conscious? in looking at the information and the integration of information and being able to say, make a definite answer. So I think maybe it eases people's uh, uh, mind about that. So all that gray area in consciousness, right? That that you can make a definite statement about what is or is not conscious. Um, right, but but the, I mean, that would be amazing if you say like absolutely. a particular number, then you could see, you know, uh, you can see whether a certain thing is conscious, like, uh, and you get a number, you get that number to go right along with it. You can say this, this thing is more conscious. This thing is less conscious. It's, it seems so quantifiable. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe it will make you feel better about like treating your stove more harshly than your microwave or something like that. Uh, but the, I mean, that sounds in principle really nice. The problem is that in practice is, I mean, I, many have argued and I have explained them in fewer words why phi end up being intractable uh i mean it, it already becomes intractable in systems that are way easier than than the brain um in addition to that it makes really uh, 
I think, absurd oversimplifications of how uh, units in the brain might work. One of the things that I remember pushing Tononi about and that I have yet no clarity over is what are these supposed to be these units that are engaged in these causal interactions? Because if they're neurons, then we simply don't have the data, right? Uh, and I'll get to the neurons in a second. And if, uh, and if they aren't neurons, if they're like more rough measures, you know how difficult it is to determine real causality when you have something like electrodes. I mean, it is, you don't know how to determine what is really the causal factor relative to the background factors and, and so forth. Um, the, the evidence and the instruments aren't even there. And even suppose that there are neurons, uh, why to think that, uh, that neurons only do like are on and off? I mean, this is Makulok and Pitts and everyone should at this point and age agree that Makulok and Pitts might have been brilliant and it was lovely that what they did, but neurons are not these thresholded things that only do one thing and go to bed when they are not triggering. That is just not how the brain works. Neurons have over four different ways of interacting and communicating information. Neuronal gap junctures, RNA transport, uh, many of which are non-synaptic. Neurons are doing all other sorts of other things when they are uh, but, you know, when they are not triggering this, this stuff. In addition to that, it is very likely uh, that glial cells, in addition to neurons, are contributing to cognition in ways that are yet to be understood. So, so even if it was, uh, even if we could measure each individual neuron and somehow uh, derivate the, the causal import of one neuron relative to another one, which I think is already absurd to think, we're talking about millions of synapses at the same time, uh, right? It is unclear that that is the right level of unity, uh, or the right for, for determining what, what the unity in the system is. So it is not that it is difficult to understand how it could be implemented in a brain like ours, is that it is likely the wrong model for how it is to be implemented in a brain, in a brain like ours, right? It looks, there's a, lots of views of, uh, of, that will make it very attractive because there is a threshold, there is a number. It will be really nice if we can organize everything in the universe according to Phi. Um, but practically, like in, in terms of when you really see how this could be implemented in a biological system like ours, and sadly, this is the only biological system that we know is conscious. So it's our best case, uh, test case. Um, then it just, just breaks down. Well, yeah, I mean, uh... I think you're, what you're saying there is that the theory itself, uh, as a computational theory, doesn't accord perfectly well with our understanding of uh, how computation is uh, carried out in the nervous system. And there's a, so much that we don't know about how computation is carried out in the nervous system. Like, you know, neurons are only one part of it, right? There's all these other mm -hmm. types of cells that are important. We don't even know for sure that, like, you know, that just the brain is, is required, you know, like could be the right. other parts right, right, of the right. body are required as well. But notice that I, that I try to refrain myself for calling the mathematical model a computational model, because I think they, they are refraining themselves from calling it a computational model as well. If it was a computational model, um, then there are ways in which it could be tested, right? So I like computational models of brain behavior interactions, 
uh, I think I use an, an example in, in, in my Substack uh, right up. Um, you know, I have seen lots of computational models where they try to fit dopamine as one specific factor. But notice, notice how, how computational modeling, you have a particular behavior, say uh, a choice behavior between A and B when A and B have different values, right? Uh, and, and you find that there is some kind of, I don't know, quadratic relation between the values and, and, the, uh, and the rewards or something like that, right? And then you're trying to figure out what part of the brain could be sensitive to the parameters by means of which this uh, behavior, uh, you know, which this behavior could be fit, right? So you have a formula, you create a formula, this is a mathematical, so like, so we generate this particular mathematical formula that has these parameters. Is there anything in the brain that say, functions as this parameter that varies quadratically in, uh, in relation to a particular reward value? Uh, and then you go and probe and, and sometimes you find that, yeah, lo and behold, actually the level of dopamine in this triatom fits perfectly well with this one parameter in my form, in my computational formula, right? So that's how the models are usually generated. I mean, this is a cartoon, but this is kind of like the idea. The idea is that you have some somewhat objective measure of some brain change that can be fit to a particular parameter in a computational model. I don't think that that's how IIT math works. If it was that the way in which it worked, it would be great, but I don't think that that's how it works. Um, when I was arguing with people about this particular point, they told me, oh, well, you know, I, I, I they like, you're an outsider. You don't know that there are all these this, uh, actual experiments that have shown that there is a, this measure of integration. So they, mentioned this this measure i forgot it's called the, pert the perturbation integration index and and i was like oh man like it looks as though this perturbation integration index is in fact a mathematical measure and when you read the paper it looks as though it's not different in kind from like this experiment that i just told you about but when you go and look at down at the math we have that uh, perturbation integration index well if i understood it correctly it is a measure of, uh, of compressibility of, of matrices. I mean, people do this when they work on network neuroscience all the time, in which you have these massive amounts of data. So that you create like a matrix uh, of cross correlations uh, between, you know, each specific voxel correlates with another voxel and that gives you some correlation number. Um, and then you want to sort of have some dimensionality reduction measure uh, and you use, there are plenty, you know, like, it, it, each lab uses their own and so forth. So it didn't seem that different to me. Uh, in no way this perturbation, and of course, when you zap somewhere in your brain, it turns out that the, the, the clustering breaks down and it is no longer accounted for by one latent variable or something like that. So that's where the papers, but they don't derive from a mathematical formula, right? There is a lot of different reasons, biological reasons as to why is it that that the brain in those situations organized in the particular way, none of those are directly derived from the mathematics, right? If the math of the information integration uh, theory was such like the math of a drift diffusion model of dopaminergic, then I would see what they are doing and I would put it sort of on a par with that. 
but I just don't think that they are on a par. Even this attempt to get at the, the empirical measures aren't really that clearly mathematically related to the mathematics, the formalisms of the theory. Yeah, that, that sort of gets to this, this uh, question about the adversarial collaboration mm-hmm. that, that sort of sparked this whole conversation from the beginning, which was, as I understood it, there was a group of people from a couple of different theories of the neural correlates of consciousness from their perspective. That's, that's what they were representing it as being. One being this global neuronal workspace theory mm-hmm. and the other being this IIT theory proponents of each of these got together and they made some predictions about what should happen under a variety of different circumstances in perceptual experiments, essentially, mm-hmm. which they relate to conscious experience in some way. So they're basically saying IAT says that this area should be active at this moment with this time course. And then global neuronal workspace theory says these different areas, particularly the frontal lobe should be active and involved in this way. And uh, these, so they make different predictions essentially. Uh, and so I guess the question is, do you think that that's true? Do you think that those, that IIT in particular does make those predictions quantitatively? And if so, you know, how does that relate to what you just said? Or, or if not, like, is that what you're yeah. saying there? So um, uh, one way of, thinking about this, this so-called predictions um, is using a framework which is slightly different. Uh, the framework that perhaps I would like to use uh, is a, a more recent framework that, that uh, Hakun Lau put in, uh, together in his, in his book on uh, in Consciousness with Trust, uh, uh, which is his latest book on, on consciousness. And he, he um, divides theories into sort of more global theories in which consciousness sort of happens at the interaction, like more like in the association criticism or something like that, but there is like this long lasting sort of connections versus more localist theories in which you have something about where the information is processed uh, that, that, that matters. So it's a little bit more local, right? less that broadcasted. Um, and my feeling is that this sort of adversarial collaboration kind of falls uh, in this dichotomy as well. So you get, of course, the global neuronal workspace hypothesis that takes uh, this this sort of like cortical cortical connections to be really essential for consciousness. Whereas the informational integration, what matters is the, the degree of, of integration and of exclusion in other parts of, um, of the brain. So presumably what you're gonna get is like these hot areas, I think that they call it or this, uh, are more sort of more local. So to a certain extent, the the sort of predictions that they were making were going to be uh, fall in either one area or like the other. Now, the problem is that, uh, first of all, those are not unique predictions, it seems to be for each specific theory. So, um, you know, uh, higher order theories of consciousness can uh, be, you know, sympathetic to some of the globalist predictions that they were, uh, even though higher order theories are not similar in in important regards to uh, the global neuronal workspace hypothesis. There is a theory that I I really like out there uh, by uh, uh, Michael Graziano at Princeton. He's uh, 
it's the, it's the theory of the attention schema. Um, and there is a sense in which I can see how the attention schema could, one could think, because uh, the attention schema is that you have sort of, an, a, you generate an attentional model of the situation in which you are in when you are uh, engaging in some sort of stimulus responsive. So, so it's going to be less, and I think that Gaziano says it in these terms, it's going to be less of what is the neural correlate of consciousness at all, but what is the neural correlate of a conscious, uh, of a conscious person at the time. So if you have a conscious that person that is visual and stuff, I can see how that theory, Graziano's theory, could make you predict that you're going to have something like a localist response. So in other words, the, the, the point is that even if you get super clean results with these so-called predictions, they're still underdetermined by theories in the sense that there are other theories that could account for them perfectly well. So that's one thing. And then the second concern with this sort of so-called predictions is that they are very vague. Mind you, I, I didn't know much about the adversarial collaboration, the details of that adversarial collaboration until after basically they, when I was asked to, to sign the letter and I read some, partly I, I read it because um, I'm friends with Lucia Meloni and I respect her an enormous amount, which is one of the PIs of this collaboration. And they share some of, of, of the documents with me. And part of what I was thinking is, uh, well, this, these predictions aren't really risky in a sense. And my sense is what it is going to happen is that the data that is going to come out of these experiments is not going to be super clear. And that's exactly what happens. It's not, you know, when you have predictions that are relatively vague, then the data has to be interpreted. And that's a problem, it seems to me when you have room for interpretation, each one of the theories is going to, to interpret it uh, as, well, you either didn't do X or X happened because we didn't think that this other thing could have happened. And that's, it seems to me that that's a lot of how this discussion has, has evolved. So- I think also the, the results of the experiment are not as clean cut as people seem to have made them out to be too. Yeah, um, yeah. Because yeah, exactly. they, I think they make clear in the paper itself that, um, here I'll read a, a section here. These results confirm some predictions of IIT and GNWT, that is Global Neuronal Workspace Theory, while substantially challenging both theories. So they, they are aware that this isn't a, a, a clean win for one or the other, or, you know, maybe as people. Right, are, right. I think that, that that what happens, and then that explains to how, you know, a, a, first of all, it is sort of unclear what the purpose of the adversarial collaboration was, if not to have something like an experiment that both teams fully agree that it was going to either support or, or you know, turn down, uh, like, right, I was right. going to say a theory, but, but part of my, my, my concern, you know, after this whole brouhaha, I have learned more and more about the process. And, and it turns out that the adversarial collaboration doesn't seem to have been proposed as a, as a single experiment or maybe like four experiments that uh, were going to support one theory and, and, and another. Um, but it was supposed to be something else, like, like some sort of exercising conversation or maybe inc increasing evidentiary support for one theory versus the other as opposed to be like the one experiment that right but 
I think both sides, both ways of thinking about the adversarial collaboration, either as a single experiment that is knocked down or as more a conversation sort of thing, are pretty uh, sort of problematic. On the one hand, um, you know, science just doesn't work by a single refutation by experiment, right? Even the sort of the best examples that that we have uh, of of uh, of single allegedly like single experiments that have refuted a theory um, are very different from what happened here. So that I'm, I have I'm thinking about Eddington's and Dyson's experiments at the curvature of light uh, that supported a uh, prediction of the of the general theory of relativity, right? So for the artists out there, just basically the idea is that if if uh, if light really did have mass, then it should be curved when there is an eclipse, the light of the of the sun. So the theory, the general theory of relativity, have a particular prediction of what the angle of that curvature was going to be, whereas the Newtonian uh, had a different prediction of how the light was supposed to go. Um, now. That and then they did the three measures, but this is actually quite complicated because it turns out that some of those measures didn't coincide with others, and there is a lot of sociology involved in why Einstein ended up being right uh, and, and Newton wrong. But um, but the important point for this one is that the predictions, unlike what happened with this adversarial collaboration, were supremely risky. Right? Mm -hmm. They predicted that to the degree of angle, and then uh, if there was some movement in the angle, which was what, in, in other words, if what it gets recorded is not exactly what it was mathematically predicted, then there is some theory of error as to why it might be possible that the curvature of the lens was such that it diverted the light or something to that effect. This is not at all what we have in the case of consciousness. In the case of, of, of this predictions, they were ni neither risky nor was there an acceptable, because we don't have it, an acceptable theory of error. I can always say things like, well, I would have found more integration had I recorded from single cells rather than recording from a population of cells. Or maybe if I recorded it for intracellular space rather than for extracellular space. Or maybe if I had used a different TR in my fMRI. Like, you know, all these things are being yeah. arguing. They also, they, they fit a lot of models to the, uh to the data and the model fitting was all based on different algorithms that are evolving also in the space. Exactly, exactly. So there is that. Yeah. Uh, so that was not what happened with that adversarial collaboration. So what happened, it seems uh, now I have come to learn later, is that it was not supposed to be like a unique experiment and so forth, but it was supposed to be more like sort of maybe an even like a, an, an issue of evidentiary weight, like given these experiments, which one was going to get but of course, but not not a hold up one hand as the winner. That's right. That's right. But of course, you're dealing with people, and you're dealing with with scientists that have made a reputation and a scientific career of holding two opposing, allegedly opposing theories of consciousness. Do you think that they're really going to sit together and, and say like, "Oh, let's come to agreement"? No. I mean, do, do you think that that at some point, if the evidence came in one direction? that Tononi is going to say like, okay, hold the presses, no more issues of Phi are going to be published. Or that Dehain was going to say like, that's it. I am going to write a book. I said like, how I was wrong about uh, my book on consciousness. So no, that's not going to happen. We do that there is, precisely because there is so much room for post hoc constructions uh, that, that there's going to be endless ways in which people can explain the pattern of results. 
Yeah. I mean, my, you know, I guess the question becomes a little bit then, you know, in terms of the back to the controversy for a second. Um, I think where people got excited about what was going on, both from the positive and the negative side was when they saw headlines that basically said, there was one headline, I think that said like neuroscience, zero philosophy one or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, basically saying, you know, uh, this was like a, a major event in in the the field of consciousness research, and I guess maybe that that was maybe more the way that it was presented there that I feel like people were objecting to than necessarily the theory itself, which I think you've presented a lot of problems with. But at the same time, I think all of our theories in neuroscience have similar problems in oh, many yeah. ways, right? Yeah. So especially and, and the, uh, you know when we're trying to relate brain function to conscious experience, we, you know, there's really no actual theory of the hard problem <laughs> at all, oh, including yeah, yeah. any of these don't even like, to my mind, even purport to, to speak to the hard problem of, of how you actually transfer something from a material uh, existence to a conscious existence. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, ultimately many of these theories, even the information integration theory, are sort of description of the phenomena that is normally correlated with consciousness, but that doesn't mean that it solves the hard problem of consciousness. Even if you think, suppose that the information integration theory is true, that somehow there are these units, right? Um, whatever they are, and that this they, it just so happens that when they reach a le certain level of phi, although for what I understand, um, and I think that I talk a little bit about this in the Substack. Uh, it turns out that uh, there are multiple solutions to certain structures, and then there is a little bit of cherry picking what's the pie. I call that pie hacking. Uh, and uh, and um, assuming that that is not the case, assuming that there is a unique solution to each cause of a structure, and that somehow all that that the ones that have a certain level of pie or whatever are conscious, and that for what miraculous reason the human brain happens to be one that you get like phi and maybe the Martian that is really nice to me on Christmas uh, also happens to have a really high phi, but my stove doesn't, right? If for some miraculous reason, I think that there's still a question as to why is it, right? That when information integration is like this, why is it that it feels the way in which it does, right? For me, even information integration theory is not a solution to the to the hard problem. I mean, um, I'm not a, there is a sense in, in which, I don't know what's the right word for that, but I'm not a mysterian uh, in the sense that I don't think that the hard problem of consciousness cannot be solved by science. I am more like, and I don't know what the right term is, but I just don't think that we would notice if we have solved it, right? Uh, my sense, is that the solution to the problem of consciousness is going to be something of the order of, uh, you know, we describe functionally everything that happens in, in, in our brain. And then someone comes with a theory, like, I don't know, maybe they, 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 uh, Graziano's schema, attention schema theory. And then they say like, well, when you have a schema that is like this, then it just is a brute fact of how things are wired and it feels the way in which it does. Just like when you have 
uh, rocks with sediments that it just happened to be that the sediments have this particular form, that, but there is no explanation as to why is it that there is like a crack right here. It's just sediments are like that, right? So I feel, but we wouldn't know, right? Because I think that we always feel that there is a gap. There is actually some work here and saying that the gap is more like a psychological. So even if I come up with the theory that I might be right, I'm still going to feel unsatisfied uh, my heart problem of consciousness. Has there is always, that's, uh, that just always seems to be the case. No matter yeah. what, what theory you could possibly come up with, someone can always say, but it doesn't tell me why I feel yeah. pain or it doesn't tell me why I see red. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I agree 100%. Like when we were talking with uh, Bernie Bars, I mean, he was describing the global workspace theory and, you know, some really interesting evidence that goes into you know his thinking behind that but at the same time to me it doesn't even touch doesn't even come into contact with the question of like okay so if you have to have this global workspace in order to process all of this complicated information that we do as people and other maybe other animals do as well yeah why does that have to lead that i to the that i would have an experience of that right right but, why does it have to that doesn't it? even touch it yeah, me. yeah. Could, I mean, you have, I could you have something that's descriptively mm. interesting without having without specifying anything causal about this? I mean, because I, I, I think that many of these theories are descriptively mm -hmm. very interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I, my full disclosure up until ten years ago, I was a fully convert into a global neural network space hypothesis, and one of the the uh, last bits of scientific work or philosophical work or whatever that I did on, on, on consciousness was to try to relate the global neuronal workspace um, hypothesis to the, the experience of conscious recollection in episodic memory retrieval, right? Um, and it was, so that was, that was sort of my last attempt. I really, I really liked the neuronal workspace hypothesis. Uh, it linked with some things that I have read about attention and, and broadcasting of information and so forth. Mind you, all of those are metaphors, right? All those terms. Broadcasting, what do you broadcast? It's like when people talk about attention and I say, like, you know, attention of resources. What are the resources? Is it metabolic resources or is some kind of, uh, you know, currency brain uses that I don't know of? So anyway, so, I mean, that's why I read them, right? Because they're descriptively very interesting. Um, look, in my in my view, I am I am a very austere neuroimager or an austere cognitive neuroscientist. I uh, believe that the progress in our disciplines, and uh, it happens for memory, but it probably happens for consciousness as well, is very clumsy and very confined to relatively small findings, right? So I am I'm an experimentalist and I love experiments that are very well, sort of were limited and, 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 uh, and very tight and very focused and as controlled as possible where you have as much control over the independent variable as you can that's why i like psychophysics so much perhaps because you feel that you really have it's tiny like the advancements are tiny and the understanding of how the specific observations are going to fit with a larger theory i think we're still far from it uh, right but we advance by smaller observations we are like in a sense, we are like the uh, the astronomers that recorded very specific observations. Whether there is going to be a Kepler or a 
you know, a Copernicus or something in the future that is going to come up uh, with a larger theory. I don't know. I think we are at the, in the stage in which we should be concerned that our observations are solid. Yeah, there's certainly a replica, replicability problem in neuroscience and psychology for sure. So that that's that's a very a point very well taken. Yeah, and I don't know, like, and and this might sound kind of counterintuitive to certain ears, uh, but I don't know that we need a theory. I am very skeptical of theories of everything in the brain. The, the brain is is profoundly weird in the sense that like it evolved for all sorts of different kinds of biological uh to solve all sorts of different kinds of, of biological and evolutionary uh challenges and uh, and it's, it's very clunky like one on top of another and so so that everything happens because every part of the brain is trying to reduce error hmm, not sure like i mean we know that the neuroanatomy is not such that there is always an independent challenge of error signal well right? and as you say that too you can see the i mean you see the appeal to simplicity and there's almost nothing simpler than than the basic idea of integrated information theory yeah. compar compared to the actual complexity of the brain yeah yeah, I, it, it reminds me, there is a, a paper, I forgot uh, what the title is, um, but by Shannon, the Shannon information, he wrote a, a paper um, warning people about overextending the notion of information theory and using information theory to stuff that wasn't initially applied for. Um, and, I, and I think that when you find theories that work, that are beautiful for specific areas, they appeal to try to get them to apply for everything else. It's just, it's, it's, it's very difficult to <laughs> to not fall in love with that with that appeal and some of them appear to be very powerful right that pure explanatory power just feels yeah it looks as a, it looks that way but then uh, what what seems at some point as explanatory power and and, and breadth of explanation ends that becoming academic accommodationism right people trying to feed it and feed it and feed it uh, and then you end up with epicycles like Copernicus, right? Every time to accommodate this like theory by creating tiny little epicycles because the beauty of the theory has to be somehow preserved. Um, and I think that we are, as neuroscientists, are no, no different in that regard than, than, than to other scientists. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one question would be, what would be a good conscious? Uh, what would be a good theory good of consciousness theory, yeah. as it relates to brain? Uh, and then you know, we could even get into like whether we want to have that conversation or whether we want to like talk about whether that's even the right conversation, but maybe I just ask it as a question. Do you a think there theory. is a good, yeah. I, I mean, that's the right question. I agree with you. That is an excellent question. And it's a very difficult one. And it is a question that I have thought, I mean, there is, a, there is a sense in which I perhaps left the field of consciousness research in part because I just didn't know what it could, what a good theory of consciousness could be. I think I had an idea and today I am completely convinced that there are good experiments that tell us stuff about the, how the brain processes conscious information, right? Um, I am, and I am very much in awe with a lot of work that has been coming from uh, some contemporary and typically younger uh, cognitive neuroscientists like um, Megan Peters' uh, work, uh, Ordegard and Jorge Morales and Northwestern, uh, Steve Fleming, Hakun Lau, like, I, I really admire uh, their work. Their work is more in the psychophysics, but with the component of consciousness. 
uh, is this clumsy way of going about the science that I think is more promising than finding like overarching theories with extraordinarily limited data. Um, so, and how would the right theory of consciousness go? I don't know uh, because I have difficult. So here's here's the contrast category. The contrast category is with what I think are good theories of say memory or say uh, you know perception or audition uh, how they pass. Part of it, what happens is that we have behavior there, right? I mean, I do you have no idea how much I I love my recognition rates and hits and false alarms and like I because I I have that behavior to prove like I. I have a lot work sometimes on probabilistic models of recognition memory, and I can say show in my model that if you modify the prior, which I have full control over, then you're going to have more or less uh, false alarms in uh, recognition tests. I love that stuff, right? Because you feel, uh, and then you can also have maybe parts of the brain that are sensitive to to uh, the priors and that are going to explain some of the variance in my behavior later on. So. If we could have something like that for consci for consciousness, then I think we will be golden. But it is hard because we don't necessarily have behavior because we're middled by everything gets modeled by introspective reports and and so forth. So um, so that that's what gets it tricky. If we sort out how the terms of the theory relate to specific measures. Right, um, and and there is sort of agreement and then clarity on how they go. Then we might start talking about how the theory uh, would look like. But I don't think that we have clarity on that. If you were to make some wild speculations, um, fifty years, do you think um, do you think people will be more happy about? experimentation and um, empirical methods to figure out consciousness or do you think it might be more of a shift in in conceptual um, space that 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 might change thinking on consciousness hmm. well uh that's a good question so i on the one hand i i think that the science of consciousness is as old as any other science of the mind, right? It just comes in different in different waves. Here's an example, something that I absolutely adore because it's a it's, it's just very clear. So you have heard about this notion of aphantasia, right? The the idea that there are people that have difficulty, if not complete impossibility, or incapacity to imagine and visualize certain mm -hmm. things in their eyes, mind, and they call it aphantasia. Um, and I remember seeing about, uh, uh, reading about this in some recent articles saying like new phenomena discovered about the mind. Not new at all. Galton had talked about a phenomenon that was similar. In fact, some of the first proofs that the Gaussian distribution in sensory perception were, uh, I mean, the, the, the distribution of the sense of sensations were kind of Gaussian and formal Gaussian distribution was because there were people that were at the tail of the distribution in their capacity to visually visual. And we're talking about 1886 or something like that. Psychology was a baby. Uh, uh, all, like Donald Hebb, for instance, had work on visualization, uh, much of which spoke to aphantasia, right? So we this. There, there are certain phenomena in, in, the, in the science of the mind that, that have revitalized under a different name and then they 
come, you know, is, is placated somehow and then it resurrects and consciousness is the same. Consciousness has been going on like that since like forever. It just comes with different. Yeah, terms. we think of it. We think of it as sort of being revived in the 90s or so, maybe exactly. because people were just more willing to talk about it or sort of directly address it. Maybe it, it's a possibility. Um, I always think that those things are, uh, you know, there's a lot of sociology that goes accompanied with mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, my own experiment, I, I do philosophy of memory, which was a, basically a non-existent field in, in the early 2000s because everyone was talking about perception, right? And now a lot of people talk about, about memory and probably it's going to decay later on again. Uh, there is a lot of sociological reasons as to why that happens. You, all you need is two philosophy professors in, a, in an admissions committee or in a hiring committee that are willing to take the risk of getting someone else, give them a desk to write, and then they end up publishing these papers, and then they move a different. Or all you need is some person who didn't think that X was a topic that was worth mentioning. You just need that person retiring or stop being the editor of a journal for that field to flourish we we should not uh diminish the role that that um uh, that sociological aspects play in in the evolution of the sciences that's an interesting that's a really interesting point and i do think yeah the the history of of scientific research on consciousness has been going on for a long time it's maybe not recognized by that name as much but certainly aspects of consciousness for a lot longer than than we think of as sort of the current revival yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and we, we have, despite that we study memory, we have really bad memories for, for reading all, <laughs> all research. Uh, and I just, I, I, when I teach my, I teach a class in philosophy and neuroscience, and I love reading older stuff and, and showing students to read older stuff. I mean, one of my favorite papers from 1966 or so by Posner talking about uh, prototypicality effects on recognition memory. Right, uh, it's this guy like Posner, this attention researcher, shows different dots that that approach a prototype, but he doesn't show the prototype. It turns out that your errors are approaching the prototype. So it's a first sort of systematic showing of prototypical effects in recognition memory. Then we have in the 1970s for further recognition of that, even informing artificial intelligence. Uh, then there was beautiful work by Hutton Lutcher and colleagues uh, showing how they they form base like, like a Bayesian model are able to predict those kinds of errors, and people rediscovered them. And then, of course, eight years ago or so, oh, finally a Bayesian explanation of of, of memory errors. Like, dude, we've known this since the nineteen fifties. Well, you can just typical answer in vision is Helmholtz must have done it in eight, yeah. in the eighteen yeah. sixties, <laughs> right? <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. So, so there is a lot of we we forget a lot. I mean, it is there is a sense in which is kind of historical replication, and it is nice to see it uh, that it gets pops out again and again and again and again without necessarily the recognition of who did it earlier, but that is it's a similar effect is going to happen. To get back and 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 nail you down for something that we can hold you accountable for in fifty years, um, do you think mm. it's going to be a conceptual shift that 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 might um, inform people, or do you think that the the wave of experimentation and sort of this general kind of approach might bear fruit? Maybe not IIT, but 
you know, or is it door number three that or is it door where the, we're on this yeah. just on these right. happy cycles and ourselves, and we're just going to be right, right back where yeah. we started in fifty years. You know, um, I don't know. I think I go back and forth in, in this because, of course, I'm a I'm a content scientist and, and neuroscientist, and I love what I do as a scientist. But I'm also a philosopher who's profoundly skeptical of the sciences, kind of like a schizophrenic life of living this this two life. Um, I think that there is going to be certain phenomena that relate to behavior that is going to be replicable and pretty solid, um, particularly in areas like psychophysics and particularly in, in a certain memory phenomena. Um, I mean, we have results like that. So from one, one thing that I detest is when people say like that the school of introspectionism was all debunked. You know, you remember this from the history of, of psychology classes that tells you in introspectionism, when Tickner and all those guys were uh, doing experiments in introspection, then it turns out the different labs, and back then there were very few labs, so um, things didn't replicate. I mean, that was the first replicate <laughs> that, that happened, right? Prices, things yeah. didn't replicate and different measures and stuff. Yeah, but there are some stuff that we got out of there. So, for instance, pain scales were developed back then and they are an extraordinarily reliable method for triaging people in emergency rooms right typically things that are going to kill you hurt more than things that are not going to kill you right so sure there are lots of some of them that are going to go underrated but overall as a very rough estimate of whether i should see you right now or if you can wait 20 minutes they are relatively decent and where were they based on where they were based on introspection Right, uh, they were based on this these things that we tend to disparage. Uh, so I have faith in results. I have faith in specific findings. How exactly they are going to fit in a theory of our cognitive ontology, I don't know. In part because it is, I mean, we have been chasing this since forever, right? That first. Our cognitive ontology is not that terribly different from Aristotle's, and uh, and everyone and is we think that we have made some progress, but eh, not entirely sure how much. Uh, but where we have definitely made progress is in results, in results that speak to specific questions about the mind, even if they don't give us an answer to the overarching question of how is the structure that that is. So I don't know that that's kind of like a wishy washy answer, but you can, but I I, I go with. I need to proportion my degree of confidence to the evidence. Sounds no, like that's, that's, sounds like a vote for empiricism, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that sounds that sounds good. I, I like that. Uh, so maybe this is a good place to wrap it up. Uh, we always like to ask a question at the end, which is, what are you excited about in terms of your own work or the work of others that you're following that's coming up in the next period of time? Like, just what are you excited about in terms of your research? Um, in terms of my research. Well, I, I have a line of research now exploring how um, memory and forgiveness interact. So I have a large research project currently exploring um, how the, the uh, peace process in Colombia, my home country, has affected the memories of the victims of political violence. Um, so I, I do a bunch of, of research on the autobiographical memories of victims as a function, and then I explore how the degree to which they have forgiven their perpetrators have modified their affected reactions toward the autobiographical memories of those wrongdoings. 
and also how it is possible that we can how could it be possible that we can employ emotional reappraisal strategies for autobiographical memories to uh, help people live together again in community and reconcile um, because you know because Colombia is now undergoing this big process in which victims and and perpetrators of of, uh, of the violent acts are back to living together so that has been a big thing uh, that I'm working on uh, these days. Sounds exciting. In terms of, of research that others have uh, have been developing, uh, I, I I love the research in metacognition, to be honest. Um, so I, I didn't know much about it. And uh, my student, Kevin O'Neill, actually uh, started working on, on the metacognition of causal reasoning and of causal judgment, which is something that I never really would have thought of unless until he started working on this topic in, in my lab. Um, and that got me really interested in metacognition. And, and uh, so the work of Steve Fleming, the work of, of um, Megan Peters, uh, the work of Jorge Morales, Northwestern, that work excited me a lot. Like I really like uh, thinking, thinking about that. Well, great. Yeah. Well, Felipe, thank you so much for being on the show. That was great. Uh, and we'd love to have you back on uh, to talk about your own research, especially that the research uh, you're talking about autobiographical memory and forgiveness sounds fascinating. We'd love to to explore that more with you. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the show and, and really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'll be happy to come anytime.